Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. This episode is the first part of a trilogy which will focus on the human rights situation in the Republic of Serbia, a country which by accidents of geography has faced continual conquest and war. Serbia's human rights culture is a product of a population that has been besieged by economic turmoil and both international and domestic oppression. Albeit foreign investment is increasing, the people have not realised its progress and most of the population's focus is on achieving economic security. Governments that seek to preserve their power and curtail civil and political rights can utilise this economic peril to their advantage. Free speech is pivotal, but breakfast is a visceral need. How do you instill a vibrant civic culture when the citizenry is focused on food and not speech? We ask these questions and more in today's episode, an interview with Nikola Kovacevic, an attorney at the Belgrade Centre for Human Rights. The Belgrade Centre for Human Rights was established in 1995 and is dedicated to the advancement of both the theory and practice of human rights and provides free legal representation in Serbia, having taken numerous cases to the European Court of Human Rights on its client's behalf. Welcome to Gravity, Nikola. Thank you. So you're an attorney with the Belgrade Center for Human Rights. May you please tell our audience a bit about your organization's policy and casework? The Belgrade Center for Human Rights is a non-governmental organization established in 1995 uh, during the regime of Slobodan Milosevic. So in those harsh times, we were one of the first NGOs uh, uh, that had aimed to uh, promote values such as human rights, rule of law, uh, democracy. Uh, after the changes uh, that happened on the 5th of October 2000, uh, in 2000, uh, the, the shift, the focus of the Belgrade Center for Human Rights was publishing, education, uh, training for decision makers uh, on the standards related to human rights, to rule of law. Uh, and since 2012, and even today, uh, our major activity is related to free legal assistance to refugees and asylum seekers, but also we are very active uh, in the field of criminal justice, especially when it comes to the rights of persons deprived of liberty and uh, combat uh, and combating torture and ill treatment as well. So the Belgrade Center for Human Rights really has a wide range of activities. Uh, and uh, in the last couple of years, we also positioned ourselves as an organization that is quite credible and quite successful in, liti- uh, in litigating cases before the European Court of Human Rights. Oh, fantastic. Very commendable work. So I'd like to start with discussing your asylum work. Since 2015, Serbia has had a refugee crisis, and I understand that it's difficult to receive the grant of asylum in Serbia, and that Serbia has granted asylum in only very few cases in the past few years. Does Serbia's asylum process conform to international law? And how has the refugee crisis in Serbia since 2015 changed the law if at all, in Serbia? Uh, well, uh, it is very important to say that uh, Serbian asylum system is quite young. Uh, we uh, adopted our first law on asylum in 2008. So next year, we're going to have a 10-year anniversary. And for these 10 years, uh, it is more than evident that uh, Serbia hasn't done uh, so much uh, to develop and to establish fair and efficient asylum procedure. Uh, and if uh, we look at the numbers, we can see that recognition rate is very low in comparison to many countries in the region. Uh, for instance, only this year, uh, this year in 2017 so far, only two persons were granted with refugee status. 
uh, in comparison to the last year, this truly is uh, a very a very bad result. Uh, and one of the reasons for this is that uh, our laws are fine. They are in line with the international standards. They will be in line very soon with the standards of the European Union. The bottom line is that the laws are decent. They will be even better. But the main problem is implementation of those laws. And the people who are delegated to implement the provisions of law on asylum and law on foreigners. Uh, one of the major issues in Serbian asylum system, one of the main reasons why the recognition rate is so low, is that Serbia automatically applies this so-called safe third country concept. So basically, this concept works uh, in a way that Serbia considers all the neighboring countries as safe countries. So whoever enters Serbia from, for example, Bulgaria or Macedonia, Serbia will not claim that they are not refugees, but they will say that it is not our duty to decide their case in merits. So this, this should have been done in Macedonia and Bulgaria. So the vast majority of cases in Serbian asylum system are dismissed, not rejected. And for that reason, we have a very low number of persons who are recognized as refugees or as other categories uh, which deserve international protection. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about the people who deserve this so-called subsidiary protection. So this is one of the main problems. And if we go back uh, to 2015, when we had a mass influx of refugees uh, in the world or in the media, uh, it is frequently said that Serbia was uh, very humane, that all the people who were transiting through this so-called Western Balkan route uh, have uh, got this existential minimum. But one of the major problems is that Serbia does not want to create a system where more people would like to stay. So they were humane and they were quite eager to shift these people from one border to another, but, on, but they completely neglected to work on the implementation of the law on asylum, to establish this efficient system. And this is not typical only for Serbia. This is a typical behavior of Macedonia, of Bulgaria, of Greece, and many other, Hungary, Croatia, and many other countries who will be uh, humane enough to allow these people to pass, but will never establish the system which will, uh, uh, make, the, which will, which will make the suitable environment for these people to stay and to establish their normal life and to enjoy all the rights they have uh, and which are arising from this 1951 refugee uh, convention. So this is the major issue. And the vast majority of these countries, including Serbia, are doing this. They're automatically applying safe third country concepts. So for instance, Hungary considers Serbia as a safe country and it sends its people back to Serbia. Serbia considers Macedonia as a safe country. Macedonia considers, considers Greece as a safe country. And then you have this chain reaction, which is based on, uh, basic, uh, on rejection to take responsibility for a certain amount of people, a certain number of people that are meeting the requirements that were set in the 1951 convention. Everyone's sending refugees back to each other. What happens next? Where do they go? Do they just keep being funneled from one country to another in Europe? Well, that, that is the case. So the vast majority of people who are currently residing in Serbia are on this so-called list for Hungary. So. A really small number of a small number of people is willing to remain here, and one of the main reasons is uh, the difficulties to obtain refugee status, and the other one is the lack of integration. So even for those people who are granted refugee status, for example, their integration is questionable. They need to learn language, they need to access uh, labor market, they need to continue their education, and all of these things are something that is considered as their rights. But unfortunately, integration plan in Serbia was adopted. Uh, in December 2016. So, mm. of course, that people will decide to choose 
Western Union countries, uh, Western European Union countries, because there you have a very well-developed uh, and established integration system. In Serbia, that is not the case. So if you don't know the language, of course, you will have difficulties to do whatever, you know, to continue education, for example, or not to pay your diploma. So we only made the first steps, and the reason for that is the thing that I already mentioned, that the main focus of Serbia, the main focus of many countries that, that are lying on the so-called Western Balkan route, is to shift those refugees from one border to another and to, and, and to show that they are declining to develop systems that could, for example, allow at least several hundred people to stay a year, which is nothing in comparison to Germany, Sweden, and many other Western European Union countries who behaved in a much more, uh, how can I say, humane manner in terms of allowing these people to stay and establishing a normal life with the refugee states. Mm. But they probably had the support services already in place, whereas Serbia had to uh, provide that because they've had more refugees uh, consistently coming from foreign countries in the past, perhaps. Yeah, but so far we have only dealt with refugees from former Yugoslavia. So right. basically, these are Serbian citizens speaking Serbian language, you know, know, knowing Serbian customs. So it was not that hard for them to adapt to the environment, to access labor market. But we have completely different, different uh, structure of people now arriving in Serbia. And, you know, I don't want to say that Serbia was inhuman, that Serbia was, I don't know, uh, not polite to these people during the, 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 the mass influx. But this is not enough. They and Serbia and any other country should. This is the problem of responsibility sharing that is not typical for Western Balkans, but for the European Union as well. Uh, and one, please, if I can add one more thing that uh, shows that Serbia is not so humane as it's trying to, uh, to, 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 to show itself, is the newly introduced practice on the borders with Bulgaria and Macedonia. So since July 2016, mixed patrols of army and police were uh, set on the borders with Bulgaria and Macedonia, and these units on a daily basis are conducting pushbacks. And this is one of the consequences of this so-called EU-Turkey deal. So after the EU-Turkey deal was uh, reached, all the countries, including Serbia, established the practice that clearly violates the international law, which mm. includes uh, pushbacks that are happening on a daily basis, sometimes in a manner that can uh, be dangerous, for example, for health and for life of these people. For example, during the night, during the winter, in green border zones. So this is one of the things that I think are very important to be mentioned because uh, this is something that is quite evident that nobody can dispute and that represents a very harsh violation of the principle of non refoulement and principle that is related to prohibition of collective expulsion. Well, <laughs> that's sad to hear. I had hoped it was a better situation on the ground. I'd like to now move to criminal justice issues in Serbia. Serbia enacted a new penal code a few years ago as part of larger domestic changes for ascension to the European Union. I understand that anyone accused of a crime has the right to counsel. If they cannot retain counsel themselves, that a counsel will be provided to them and that this is guaranteed by the Serbian constitution and that they have the presumption of innocence. Now, are the criminally accused in Serbia promptly provided effective assistance of counsel both during police interrogation and uh, in the defense of their case? So when it comes to ex officio defense, defense in the criminal proceeding, this is a burning issue right now. One of the main reasons is that Serbia... Uh, and the Serbian Bar Chamber did not uh, establish 
uh, a proper system which uh, will deal with the appointments of ex officio lawyers. When it comes to those people who can afford their own defense, who can invite and call, summon their, their uh, the, uh, lawyers which they choose, when it comes to those people who cannot afford uh, a lawyer they choose, but uh, who are granted with uh, a free legal aid by, by uh, ex officio lawyer who is on the list of a bar chamber, uh, we have huge problems. And we have situations where police departments and the police stations are uh, basically inviting same people all the time to provide ex officio assistance. And these lawyers uh, are not behaving uh, in a manner that protects the interests of the clients. They are, how can I say, uh, ready to make some sort of agreement in order to be invited the next time. So we have situations where lawyers, ex officio lawyers, do not initiate proceedings against police officers who, for example, tried to extort the confession uh, from the defendant. And in this sort of situation, we have uh, a problem of ill treatment in the police station, especially in the first hours of the arrest. Those people who can afford lawyers on the, of their own choice, they uh, have less risks and they are facing less risks to be ill-treated for the purpose of extorting evidence. But for the vast majority of criminal defendants in Serbia, uh, it is not the case, since they cannot afford their own lawyers. And they are the victims of inhuman or degrading treatment. Sometimes that treatment can even amount to torture. But this is one of the main problems when it comes to work of uh, attorneys at law acting as a defense lawyers. Uh, when it comes to the presumption of innocence, especially in those highly sensitive political cases, uh, we are witnessing, uh, how can I say, the increasing involvement of the highest state officials who are quite eager to comment on the arrest, on the charges that are pressed against someone, and in that way to make a pressure on the judiciary that is very dependent on the executive and the legislative branch controlled by the Serbian Progressive Party. And of course, that in these sort of cases, you have uh, a violation of the presumption of innocence. Uh, two months ago, I think there was a very, uh, okay, very good documentary uh, that covered all of these topics, topics of uh, presumption of innocence, uh, uh, pre-trial detention, and many of the people who, were, uh, who took part in that, in that documentary uh, were victims uh, of either ill treatment or were victims of uh, practice that included uh, commentaries from the highest state officials, which put additional pressure on, on the judicial authorities when it comes to uh, criminal proceeding, when it comes to pretrial detention and many other things that, that can happen during this, during this process. You mentioned pre-trial detention being a problem now. According to the Institute for Criminal Research Policy's prison brief on Serbia, 14.5% of the prison population in 2015 were held uh, before, any, uh, before any verdict in their trial had taken place. So they were in pre-detention. Um, this is unfortunate for many reasons, none the least because it eviscerates basically the presumption of innocence as well as impeding defense and providing unwarranted stress on the accused. May you please elaborate more on uh, pre-trial detention in Serbia, which seems to be given as a matter of course by the judiciary. And is there any movement to remedy this prevalence? Well, unfortunately, pre-trial detention, the purpose of this measure is to secure the presence of the defendant during the criminal proceeding. It is not an investigative activity, but very often the pre-trial detention is used as a mean to pressure and to coerce the defendant to admit the crime or at least to make some sort of agreement with the public prosecutor's office. 
And unfortunately, uh, according to the data that the Belgrade Center for Human Rights uh, uh, has been obtaining since 2012, every year more than 25,000 days of unjustified detention is imposed, which means that more than 50 years of unjustified detention, detention that eventually uh, uh, appeared to be uh, not to be necessary because people were either released or there was not enough evidence to press charges or to pursue charges further. So it is a huge problem. Excessive use of pretrial detention is one of the things that is not only mentioned in the um, uh, prison, uh, in the prison brief studies, but it is also mentioned in the uh, CPT reports, in the reports of the Human Rights Committee, Committee uh, Against Torture, and many other international bodies, Council of Europe. So these are all the burning issues. And if we take into consideration the treatment to which pretrial detainees, which are still uh, innocent and should be considered as innocent, are subjected to, uh, we uh, have come to the conclusion that pretrial detainees have even harsher treatment than, for example, convicted uh, felons. So they are locked up for 22 hours in overcrowded cells without possibility to normally communicate with their families, without possibility to, uh, uh, to work while they're in prison, without possibility to continue their education. And you can imagine what happens with the people who are eventually released, where the charges are dropped, and who, for example, spend six months, one year. And we also found cases where unjustified pre-trial detention lasted for more than three years, sometimes even five. This is one case from 2013. So it is quite clear that uh, pre-trial detention is, detention is used excessively, that a lot of money is paid, damages are paid to those people who are unjustifiably detained, and that, of course, uh, those people who uh, were separated from their families, from their normal lives, uh, leave pre-trial detention with a severe psychological consequences. And if we take all of this in consideration, we can make uh, uh, an estimation that the vast majority of pretrial detainees in Serbia are subjected to inhuman and degrading treatment due to a lack of privacy, due to overcrowding, due to uh, poor hygiene, due to a lack of meaningless activities. And all of these things are not something that the researchers from the Belgrade Center for Human Rights are claiming. This is something that can be found in every single report related to the rights of persons deprived of liberty. Now, you mentioned overcrowding in prisons. According to a recent report by the Council of Europe, Serbia has the highest concentration of prisoners within Europe. It has uh, 160 inmates per 100,000 inhabitants. Now, of course, when we compare it to the world's worst offender, the United States, which has a whopping 693 people per 100,000, that seems a little small, but still it is one of the worst in Europe. Now, nearly one-fifth of that prison population, as we've discussed, have not been convicted of a crime. And you mentioned they have very poor prison conditions. Uh, there's not enough wardens or access to proper health care or hygiene. Now, it seems that that's also in part due to overcrowding because you have too many people overcrowding limited facilities. Now, may you please elaborate more on prison conditions and what changes need to be made to ameliorate these conditions and if there's any progress currently being made in the area? Uh, unfortunately, if we look at the statistics that, once again, my organization has obtained, in Serbia today, we have, let's say, uh, 10,500 people, including those pre-trial, uh, uh, including the pre-trial that they need. Uh, but if you look at the statistics of how many uh, prison sentences were imposed on an annual basis, we can see that today, as we speak, more than 10,000 people more is waiting to go to serve their sentence. And the reason for this is also an excessive use of short-term prison sentences. 
if you look at the statistics that we have, uh, for example, in our annual report on human rights, we can see that the vast majority of prison sentences that were imposed in the period of previous six years uh, were up to one year. More than 70% of those sentences are up to two years. So all of these uh, uh, people who were sentenced in these short-term prison sentences could have been uh, imposed with some other alternative measure, such as community work, such as uh, home imprisonment. Because as you mentioned at the beginning, we had a lots of amendments on our criminal code and a lots of new measures were introduced, including those so-called alternative sanctions. But unfortunately, uh, the percentage of the alternative sanctions that are being used, as well as alternatives to pre-trial detention, such as bail, such as uh, home arrest, are used, they're, they're just not used enough. And that is the reason why our prison system is overcrowded and it will continue to be overcrowded in the next at least five years. So the, 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 the key uh, for the resolution of this problem is to change the attitudes of judicial authorities, to change the attitude of judges and prosecutors, to orient themselves more towards to alternatives of, of, of incarceration. Because pretrial detention, prison sentence, these are all the measures that should be used as a last resort. Unfortunately, these are, prime, these are the measures that are being used primarily by our judicial authorities here, here in Serbia. So this is one of the main problems why we have the worst results when it comes to the, the, the various different surveys uh, conducted not only by Council of Europe, but also by UN bodies, uh, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, uh, Watch and many other, genu uh, many other, how can I say, um, NGOs, international or national, who are dealing with this, with this topic. Now, at the beginning of the interview, when you were talking about the work of the Belgrade Centre for Human Rights, you mentioned uh, work on torture. May you please explain a little bit more about the work that you do there? Uh, well, since 2009, uh, the Belgrade Centre for Human Rights uh, has been monitoring the state uh, of affairs in Serbian prisons. Uh, and during the, the period of that, of that time, we got in touch with a lot of persons uh, deprived of liberty who claimed that they had been victims of some sort of ill treatment while they were arrested by the police. So since 2012, we started to collect data from all the courts and all the public prosecutor's offices, which are related to uh, uh, criminal offenses that are called, one of them is extortion of confession, the other one is torture and ill treatment. And these are the criminal offenses mainly, uh, uh, which mainly include uh, police officers, prison guards, and other state officials that have possibility to use force. And uh, according to the research that we've been conducting since 2012, one of the main uh, conclusions that we draw is that in Serbia, there is a huge problem with the impunity of state officials who were uh, accused of torture or inhuman and degrading treatment. Uh, our research will be finished at the end of this year, and it will have a comprehensive uh, picture on all the cases ever initiated against a police officer, prison guard, common police officer, or any other state, uh, state official. And thanks to our research, uh, Committee for Prevention of Torture of the Council of Europe decided for the first time in Serbia's history to conduct ad hoc visits and to analyze the case files, the most disturbing case files, of, uh, which uh, included allegations of torture uh, uh, committed by the hands of Serbian police mainly. Uh, also, the Belgrade Center for Human Rights litigated several cases before the European Court of Human Rights where we managed to prove that, uh, for example, prisoners or uh, persons who were uh, kept in the police custody were ill-treated, and that the state 
scale to conduct fair, efficient, and prompt criminal procedure in order to determine all the facts, in order to discover uh, those who are responsible, and to punish them adequately. So the problem of, imp of impunity is one of the major problems, and unfortunately, when we analyzed all the cases and when we conducted hundreds of interviews with many uh, people who are now serving prison sentences, the vast majority of these cases are not even reported because those victims do not think uh, that uh, those the victims do not think that uh, this case will ever have a positive outcome. Will ever lead will ever lead to uh, responsibility of a police officer. Oh, that's that's a shame. So I'd like now to move on to freedom of the press in Serbia. Serbia's position on press freedom in the Reporters Without Borders World Index fell this year from 59th place last year to 66th place. And members of the government have brought defamation actions against members of the press. Now, two verdicts handed down this year were particularly alarming for press freedom. Stefan Svetković was convicted for defamation and faces 27 months in prison, which I thought was, it, it's somewhat confusing for me because I thought that while the old penal code contained the criminal offense of insult, uh, the, there was a new penal code uh, and it was decriminalized in 2013. Secondly, NIN, or Nedeljne Informativne Novine, or the weekly informational paper, was fined an astronomical figure after what appears to be an uncharacteristically short trial for defaming the interior minister after an article linking him to vandals demolishing parts of Savamala in Belgrade to make way for a government-sponsored waterfront project. Now, may you please elaborate on the current state of freedom of the press in Serbia and on these two cases in particular? Well, when it comes to Mr. Tsvetkovic's case, this case is still pending uh, on the appellate court, so we'll see the outcome. And when it comes to uh, Nin's case, uh, fortunately, the case had a positive outcome because the second instance, the appellate court, rendered a decision which squashed the first instance decision and uh, dropped charges against, against, uh, the, against Nin. So it was a very positive outcome, and eventually the Ministry uh, of Interior, who pressed charges, who uh, submitted the complaint, was uh, ordered to pay the costs of this of this process. So it is one of the few uh, positive outcomes when it comes to the freedom of media. But the, when it comes to the freedom of media, and when it comes to the influence of the government, especially this current government that it has on the media, the most disturbing thing is uh, the privatization that was finished in 2015 when all the state and local municipalities media were sold to persons with how can i say uh not such a uh, rich background in media work so the vast majority especially the local media was sold to uh, the people who are quite uh, closely connected or even a members of the uh, serbian progressive party and now and then, when you have this sort of situation, you can imagine what sort of content are these uh, uh, media broadcasting and the, the way they're influencing the local municipalities and the, the, the inhabitants of local municipalities. Uh, also, uh, when it comes to those bodies that should, uh, how can I say, control the content of the media, such as a regulatory body, it's called REM. I don't know if you're familiar. Mm. It's, uh, we call it REM. So it is electronic media regulatory uh, regulatory body. Right. So the members of this body were still not elected, and those elected who were uh, and those three members who were elected are quite close to the new progressive party. So they, for example, should uh, uh, control the contents of media that, for example, uh, labeling people 
as uh, foreign uh, agents or as spies or which are uh, directly passing the information from the, the Serbian Progressive Party, which contains insults. But unfortunately, this body is completely subjected, subjected to the current government, and it is not a surprise that Serbia has dropped. I was pleasantly surprised to hear about the appellate court's decision in the NIN case. Um, that, that's yes. fantastic because it was quite alarming, the lower court's decision. Now, it seems also that when you were talking about the privatization and the ownership of the media, that the muffling of democracy's watchdog in Serbia seems not only a product of direct actions by the government, but is inherent to the media structure. And there was a recent study by the Balkan Investigative Network and Reporters Without Borders that analyzed this high concentration of ownership, including cross-media ownership, as well as the lack of transparency of ownership. Is there a law in Serbia that uh, prevents concentration of ownership when there's 35% audience share, but but that would leave a loophole if somebody, for instance, or if a corporation owned uh, small local outlets that themselves had, say, only 1% or 2% uh, audience share, but collectively could have over 35% ownership, but wouldn't be caught by the law. The most uh, disturbing thing uh, when it comes to, uh, to the media ownership is that uh, those people and those companies who bought media after the privatization are closely connected to the governing uh, to the governing party, and if you see the content of their broadcasting, it is quite clear that uh, these are the words of people who are who are uh, deeply uh, closely connected to the to the Serbian Progressive Party. So, I must say that you know in this particular field, maybe I cannot give you such a comprehensive answer. But the major problem, which is also stated in our report, is that this privatization was not transparent and that uh, people who, uh, how can I say, uh, bought this media uh, have a very, uh, how can I say, suspicious background. No, I, I'd like to discuss now the, the president and former prime minister Alexander Vucic's foray into the arts last year. His progressive party curated a gallery exhibition full of negative portrayals of the government and uh, Vucic in particular, purportedly in an effort to show that the government doesn't censor media in Serbia, albeit I note they titled it Uncensored Lies. It is quite evident that the, the current uh, structure of government, the people who are now forming the government, who are the major stakeholders in Serbia, they are, how to, they are not, uh, they uh, think that all the critics are coming from the media, especially those who are still independent who are, and who are uh, uh, reporting in an objective manner. They think it is an attack on their own personalities. They think it is an act of people who do not uh, wish well for Serbia. So we can, if we only observe our prime minister now, uh, former prime minister now, our president, how he communicates with the, uh, with the journalists during the press conference, you can see uh, a lot of emotions, uh, a lack of possibility to behave in a professional manner. There is no question that is unacceptable. There is only a question that you can answer or not. But all these questions, which are not, how can I say, in line with the things that Mr. Vucic wants to hear, uh, are portrayed and are presented uh, as an, a direct attack on him and on the reporters of Serbia. And then you have this division on those media who are completely uh, supporting the current government and the media, uh, for example, on which Mr. Vucic does not want to appear at all, for example, N1 in Serbia, uh, or uh, even the, this uh, national uh, uh, radio, television of Serbia, uh, radio television of Serbia, 
he's reluctant to go because he does not want to be put, put in a situation where, where he receives critics. But when it comes to these other media, such as Pink, such as Happy Channel, he goes and he has these monodramas where he's the one who is asking questions and responding to the same one. And of course, uh, after a certain period of time, this was noted by many uh, organizations, uh, by many uh, international factors. And of course, that uh, uh, in many reports, uh, Serbia is mentioned as a country where auto-censorship of the journalists who are afraid to ask questions or censorship of media uh, who are prepared to criticize or to publish critics of other people who are against this government. And you see the situation where these media are listed. And then one of the outcomes of that was this, uh, this, uh, this event or this traveling event that was organized by the Serbian Progressive Party, where they basically labeled all the media and all the authors and all the journalists who have ever written something or who have ever criticized uh, the current government. And this is a direct threat. I can consider that this is a direct threat. This is pure labeling. And this means uh, that this government is not mature enough to understand the, the very content and the very purpose of the freedom of expression. Oh, that, that's, that's very unfortunate. There was an article uh, early in the year by Vesna Pesic, and she had said that this, it was a very uh, good article about, um, and not just in Serbia, this is a world phenomenon where we're in post-factual politics. And, uh, and just what you described, how Vucic is not only impolite, but has, it, it seems to have a total disregard for journalists during a press conference is exactly how uh, Trump is in the United States. Uh, and it, it, it's unfortunate that we're entering this phenomenon around the world where people have to say they believe in facts. <laughs> it's a preposterous statement. <laughs> we see Poland now. We see many European Union countries which are uh, shrinking the space for freedom of media. And then if, when you, if you take in consideration Serbia, this is a very huge problem for us because usually when you work in an NGO, you like to present your stakeholders with the practice, with a good practice from abroad, from the European Union, from the countries. But now when you see the United States, Poland, and many other countries which are shrinking the space for freedom of media, which are not so, which are uh, reluctant to, to receive a critic, it is very hard for us to, you know, argue to advocate for uh, for, the, uh, for the improvement of the practice because they will say, okay, you criticize me, but do you see what is doing the president of the United States? You know, so this is this truly is a disturbing thing for the entire world. Yeah. Very. Um, now it appears that the current Serbian government is also, when it's criticizing um, its critics, it's also focusing on criticizing the work of human rights activists and organizations by labeling them as foreign provocateurs and has used the fact of their foreign funding as evidence. I think in particular, uh, some organizations are funded by George Soros, which they're particularly against. Now. This has been favored by other regimes, including Modi's government in India, as a tactic against human rights organizations. What has been the public reaction to this claim, and has there been pressure placed upon human rights organizations that receive foreign funding in Serbia? Yeah, uh, well, to be honest, so far these initiatives uh, were frequent, but they were coming from those right-wing parties, which are not, fortunately, not so influential in Serbia. But if you look at the trends in the neighboring countries, for example, if you see the situation in Hungary uh, and the persecution of NGOs, for example, Hungarian Helsinki Committee by uh, Mr. Orban directly, then you see that this trend is starting to appear here in Serbia as well. Uh, when it comes to the cooperation between NGOs uh, and the current government in Serbia, this, this, uh, 
these communication barriers. So the highest officials are quite, uh, how can I say, close uh, uh, towards the cooperation with the NGOs. But when it comes to those uh, middle or uh, lower-ranked uh, people in the state institutions, uh, in many of the situations we can see the, the, the examples of good practice. But still, unfortunately, in the most uh, uh, okay, popular uh, uh, newspapers, in the most popular televisions, uh, from time to time, uh, you can see that these media are publishing the list of NGOs, are publishing uh, uh, the, 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 the extracts from the, from the papers, from the documents that were uh, obtained from the bank, for example, on the amounts of money that was paid for a certain project. And, of course, the Belarus Center for Human Rights, the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights, and many other NGOs are enlisted as foreign agents, as people who are receiving money from Soros. And, of course, it is not... Uh, uh, how, uh, how can I say? It is not a nice situation that you know that you work for an organization that is considered in public as an organization that is uh, generating uh, spies or foreign agents that are against the Serbian interests. And yeah, this is something that uh, there is a risk for this. Uh, it, this was mentioned in the uh, European Union Progress Report. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, so far, no one was ever held responsible for making this sort of list, which can be considered as a threat directly. Uh, directed uh, to the Government Center for Human Rights and many, many other NGOs. So in your opinion, what are the main human rights infringements in Serbia right now? Mm -hmm. Definitely right to a fair trial. Our judiciary is completely dysfunctional. We uh, undergone like, at least three judicial reforms, but all of these reforms failed. Uh, also, uh, social and economical rights, uh, if we're talking about rights of workers, if we're talking about uh, high rates of unemployment, even though the government says that the unemployment rate is below 14%, it is very important to know the methodology of the government when they're making these numbers, because the person who works for one hour a day is considered as an employed person. So, unfortunately, the unemployment rate and poverty uh, is a problem that will continue to rise. Uh, in the future, uh, and of course, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of media, uh, freedom of assembly, these are some of the rights that, uh, uh, Roma rights, uh, you know, minority rights, so really a lot, of, a lot of gray areas and a lot of areas where Serbia needs to do much more in order to uh, reach those minimum standards, which will allow people to enjoy, enjoy their basic rights. So you mentioned that the economy continues to be dire in Serbia. Now, freedom of speech is a pivotal human right. And yet without breakfast, the ability to speak seems to pale before hunger. You mentioned the high unemployment rate. The UNDP has provided statistics that 41.3% of the Serbian population is at risk of poverty. Now, is the public apathetic about the importance of obtaining civil rights, placing primacy on the achievement of economic rights within this dire economic situation? And if so, in such an apathetic environment, how are we to progress with building a culture of civic rights and active citizenship for a robust and responsive democracy? That's a, that's a key question. And unfortunately, the vast majority of Serbian population uh, lives very hard. They, uh, for example, families when only one person is employed uh, are undergoing huge difficulties in order to, to, to reach this so-called existential minimum. And unfortunately, due to this, how can I say, uh, high level of poverty and high level uh, of, of, of uh, uh, the people are afraid 
So Serbia has become a suitable ground for the foreign investors. Uh, a lot of money is paid by the government to foreign investors in order to open factories, in order to open. But these all, all of these factories which are open in the last several years are employing people on the minimal, uh, minimal wages. And uh, due to a high level of poverty, those people are more willing to be silent and to accept the small portions of money they get. And they are not so uh, eager to be vocal and to complain about, for example, their labor rights. So we have situations uh, where people work for 200, 300 euros, 12 hours a day, and in the conditions which are appalling. A lot of media uh, reports were, for example, uh, we had a lot of media reports and a lot of uh, uh, documentaries on the, the, the position of laborers in factories on the south of Serbia, which are opened by the South Koreans. And where you see people, and you, you, when you see people who are working uh, constantly for eight to ten hours a day for 25,000 dinners, and the main problem is that if they uh, are not satisfied with the conditions, they will get fired, and there's going to be someone else who doesn't have anything who will get this job. So the high level of poverty basically neutralized the, the, the civic movement, and I think unfortunately that the vast majority of people who live below existential minimum would accept a minimum. And they will be silent, and in that way, they will completely neglect the, the huge range of rights they have just to save the job that will bring them some money that will allow them barely to survive. So this is one of the main issues, and this is why the people are afraid. And if we go back to the elections of last year, a lot of these people who got jobs got jobs thanks to the membership in one of the, uh, the biggest Serbian progressive parties. And all of these people, you can see many reports where these people were threatened by their directors. They need to vote for a specific government in order to keep their jobs. So basically, they're victims or they're hostages of the current situation of poverty. And that is why I think the vast majority than every Serbian citizen is afraid to raise his voice. And those people who are not afraid to raise their voice, those intellectuals, they are unfortunately a uh, minority. And that's how you have the situation with the party, which does not uh, establish, which, which does not have such a good result, still enjoy more than 50% uh, of uh, support because of a high membership rate, because the people are afraid not to vote for them because they got this small job, and because they control the media that is covering uh, uh, those national frequency, uh, this media that are, uh, have this national frequency. And you have a situation where the control it's shrinking uh, in the hands of one uh, of one party. That's unfortunate to hear. Serbia's had such a tragic history. <laughs> it, um, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons people are so apathetic because, oh, it's never been good, right? That's probably one of the things that um, is pertinent in their minds. They, every generation says, oh, can, can have a story that starts with before the war and it's always a different war. They're struggling to survive. They're afraid to lose the, the small thing that they have. And there's Even also though they deserve much more. Yeah. Right. And there's also a brain drain, right? Yes. All well-educated. Not even now this uh, uh, craftsman, uh, you know, uh, doctors, uh, all the people who have the possibility to leave Serbia, they do this, especially young people. So today in the state institutions, unfortunately, this is my personal experience. When you communicate with someone, even though he has a good will to work with you, you see that these institutions are now consisted of mediocre people, not best of the best, but mediocre people who do not have qualifications to make decisions and to do their job properly. 
And this uh, party, one of the major problems also in Serbia is that if you want to, if you want to get a state job, you need to be a member of one of the ruling uh, state parties. So this is one of the preconditions for you to get uh, um, a job at some agency or at some ministry or to start working as a police officer. So if you receive the support from the from the political party to get a job, of course that you're going to be loyal to to this party. And this, uh, fortunately, I, I, I don't see the way that this can change uh, unless some uh, sharp overturn, uh, sharp sharp turn uh, happens. But right now, uh, unfortunately, uh, it has gone too far, and we are losing minds. We are losing people who are who are capable of uh, of bringing success and bringing professionalism, bringing the highest standards in the work of the state institutions. They just don't want to be a part of this. They leave. All the more reason for you and other attorneys at the Belgrade Center for Human Rights to do the work that you're doing. And it's very important at this time. And I thank you for your work in Serbia and for uh, taking the time to enlighten our audience as to what is happening in the country with respect to human rights today. Thank you. Thank you, Alexander. It was my pleasure. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.